I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And our guest today is a producer, writer, documentary filmmaker, host of the philosophy-focused Dilemma podcast, and a good man who I have come to call my friend. Jay Shapiro, welcome back to the show for a fourth time. Hello, Michael. Glad to be back for the fourth time. Well, I'm glad that we're both glad that you're here. (laughs) So talk to us a bit about what you've been working on with Sam Harris, which is kind of the impetus for why we're having our fourth conversation. Yeah, this is also a reason why Dilemma has been quiet, because I've been very, very busy for those of you who are missing me or following me. I've been writing a sort of archive series. They're almost like audio documentaries based on topics that Sam is interested in and using clips from his archives. It first sort of came to me with him asking me basically to dive through the archives because a lot of people discover Sam and now he's on like his 300th episode and people are very unlikely to go back to episode 10 or 11 or whatever it is. But there's a lot of gold there that is still very relevant. So it was sort of a task to be like, let's see what we can do to sort of dredge up the archives, put them together and juxtapose them in an interesting way to attract new listeners or for new people who are finding Sam to sort of rediscover some of his old stuff and his ideas. But it grew into a lot more than that, where I ended up doing a ton of writing on all of them. So there's topics like AI and consciousness. I just finished the one on foundations of morality, writing the one about violence and his sort of interest and philosophy and ethics of violence. So really interesting, deep topics. It dredges up old conversations with people like Paul Bloom and his first conversations with John Haidt, like great stuff that is just evergreen. And so it's really locked in my mind, you know, writing on these topics. Writing in general has a way of just sharpening actually what you think about a topic. You realize what you don't know. And so I'm pretty tuned into a lot of these at the moment. Megan Phelps Roper is the voice of them. I just write them. If people don't know Megan or the name rings a bell, she was a member of the Westboro Baptist Church, that (laughs) group that held up those very colorful God Hates Fags posters and protested soldiers' funerals and all kinds of awful stuff. She left the church 10 years ago. She has an amazing story. She's written a book about it. She's given a TED talk about it, but she also happens to have a really lovely voice. So she does the voice. And in the episode about religion that I wrote, she breaks the fourth wall and then we include her own story and episode with Sam as one of the clips. There's usually like six to eight clips that we include, but then a lot of writing. I get to do a lot of the fun stuff I do on Dilemma, like moral philosophy kind of dilemmas with cool audio techniques and stuff. So yeah, I'm excited for it to roll out. It'll roll out, I think in December, maybe mid-November, but look out for it. I'm proud of them and it's sort of an ongoing project. So that's what I've been up to. Something you said just now about how writing all of your thoughts out about these various clips that you're discussing and transcribing, there is something about writing your thoughts out rather than just thinking them that kind of leads to almost a conversation with yourself. Is that how you feel? That's a really good way to put it. I mean, you realize... There's something crystallizing about writing, and you'll get this also as a visual storyteller and a filmmaker. You know, we could have these intellectual thoughts and these great ideas. You could be in a pre-production meeting and say all these really beautiful things about what you want to accomplish with the film. And then in the end, it's light and shadow and sound, right? Like you have to like crystallize it to something deliverable. And writing, you get to play a little bit more because, you know, you're still sort of the puppeteer of the imagination of the listener or the reader, as it were. But you still need to like form the sentence and say something concrete. And there's something very important about that process where you can't sort of hedge the bet anymore. You can't just be painting 
as an impressionist, it, you sort of have to crystallize an argument a bit with realism. And so, yeah, it is a bit of a conversation with yourself to sharpen something, to be a little bold, to put something on the page. Yeah, and then you always discover, you always learn. This isn't like a new insight. People have been journaling forever, right? Keeping diaries forever. And I think that that practice is because you do need to sort of <laughs> talk to yourself on a page and have this internal dialogue. And so even though the clips are geared towards what me really wanting to represent Sam's view and make sure the listener understands that there's a lot of my own voice in there. And Sam has been very gracious for letting, giving me a lot of leeway for things that I might put in my own words or disagree with even. So it feels like mine, but also my perspective on Sam's thoughts. And that's also an interesting thing to do is really to try to get into someone else's head and represent a view that you might not necessarily hold, but make sure that you're fair to it. So yeah. It sounds like a great project. I can't wait to see and hear more of it. Going back to something you said just now, and I think this helps us lead into the next bit, I want to talk to you a bit about Peter Singer, who you've been working with for a while. There is something about writing something or putting something to film or something to the page that involves just making an active choice, where when something is in your head, no matter how long you're thinking about it, especially when you make a choice publicly to put something to film for others to read, to make a work of art for others to see, there is something that can be anxiety-inducing, but also really empowering about making that choice. But it's the choice-making, I think, which can separate something like writing from just thinking. And I think that translates or takes us rather well into a... 1971 essay by Peter Singer entitled Famine, Affluence, and Morality, in which he first proposed his now famous drowning child scenario. But before we get to that, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a bit about this project you've been working on with Singer. Yeah, we're just at the very beginning of it. Peter Singer, for those of you who don't know, he's an Australian philosopher, is known as maybe, this is like the, <laughs> the moniker that just goes with his name now as the world's most influential living philosopher. And that really is the premise of this documentary that I'm working on, is the influence of Peter Singer. And the structure of it, he's been teaching a course at Princeton University of Intro to Ethics for like 25 years or something. And this is the final year he's doing it. He's retiring, well, actually next fall. So it's a great segue because we're structuring the film in a similar way where we're going to be in his lectures where he's delivering these intellectual thoughts and it's ivory tower-ish at Princeton. but Peter, particularly, his ideas get into the world. And so we're going to be filming out in the world with charities that he recommends, how to evaluate them, the dilemmas that people face in the real world, on the ground. Like we could talk about these intellectual ideas all day, but in the end, we're all living out in the real world and bumping into each other. And it's complex and it's confusing and psychology is involved. And so I hope in the film to have almost this stark transition every time we go from the mess of Singer's ideas in the real world from Singer's ideas in sort of a crystallized or sort of protected environment in academia. And Peter's been doing that his entire career. He's totally focused on how philosophy can change lives, how philosophy can change your behavior, how philosophy can affect what kind of work you decide to do, what you decide to eat. He wrote Animal Liberation 50 years ago. He's a vegan. All of these things are Peter's work. And so that's a really fun challenge. It's similar in a way to what I tried to do with the film with Sam and Majid, where it was trying to put an intellectual conversation, a phone call on screen, which is a fun challenge to be like, how does this actually work on the screen? And for, you know, I think we pulled it off in some ways. This is another kind of similar challenge of like, I love ideas, I love philosophy. How do I put it on the screen? 
Peter's ideas are easier because as we talk through them, if we get into them, we live through them every day, all of us. And they're more relevant than ever. But the sort of tagline is, Peter Singer is a philosopher who has put ideas in the world that have made people do really big things. He gets emails like every day from people who donate their kidneys because they read his books and decided this, I don't need to, and I could save a life potentially, so let me give one. <laughs> this is like a very Peter Singer argument. That's a big thing. People who face jail time for enacting his ideas on animal liberation and are rescuing animals because talk about this really fascinating case that I think we're going to weave into the film that just happened. Anyway, I'm excited about that one. We're just at the very beginning stages, so don't get too excited for your listeners. You're probably two and a half years away from being able to see anything. But yeah, that's Peter Singer. Well, to all our listeners, let the excitement build in your mind <laughs> slowly over the next slowly. 36 months or so. I think that that's a really good segue into the drowning child scenario because it is about that conflict between what would you do kind of hypothetically versus how that translates to what we actually do in our day-to-day. -day. So for our listeners who might not be familiar with this scenario, although it has become almost mimetic in terms of how it's kind of spread throughout society, I'm sure everyone listening to this has probably heard some variation of it, but it started with Singer. So to kind of start us off, can you walk us through what the drowning child scenario is? So yeah, as you mentioned, he first wrote it in a essay in 1971. And it was almost like a throwaway line. It sort of went viral before the internet helped things go viral. And it just goes like this. So imagine you're walking by a pond and it's a shallow pond. You know the pond, it's in your neighborhood and you know the likely dangers of it. It's just a shallow pond. And you're walking by and you just bought a new pair of shoes. And the new pair of shoes, let's say, cost like a hundred bucks and you didn't need them. They were sort of a luxury item. You already had several pairs of shoes that you liked, but you just bought this new pair of shoes. You're wearing them and you're walking by this pond and you look over and you notice there's a child in the pond drowning, flailing for her life, clearly about to die. Do you run into the pond and rescue the child, knowing very likely that you're going to muddy your shoes and probably ruin them? And that's it. That's the whole thought experiment. So everyone's like waiting, being like, is that it? Like, of course I rescue the child. <laughs> like, There's nothing more coming. And so then he takes it and says, well, what if I told you that we're kind of, and he's again talking about those of us mostly in the sort of the affluent West or of affluence, that we're kind of always in that situation or much more than we think we are. Because what if you rewound the clock and I, to the point that you were at the shoe store and about to buy those shoes for $100, and I could say like, hey, hold on, you don't, instead of buying the shoes, would you donate that money to this charity? And here's all the data that shows that that charity very likely your donation will save the life of a child in Africa by malaria nets or whatever else it is. And that's the scenario. Would you forego giving to the charity and still buy the shoes? And that was his challenge of sort of a moral opportunity and moral obligation. And we could talk about all the complications. And in the episode that I wrote on the foundations of morality for Sam, I start with this and Peter Singer has talked to Sam, and that was the first clip that I used. And then we play with all the variations and all the challenges, and including Sam's pushback. And not even pushback, but just different angles. And it's a fascinating little question. And it's done a lot of work in the world. A lot of people have heard that story and maybe are overcome and washed with guilt of like, oh shit, am I killing children every day that I buy a Starbucks that I don't really need? Have you killed a child this year? Or another way to put it, have you let a child die? And is there any difference? by foregoing to give to the charity, et cetera. So that's Peter's drowning child story. And it does a lot of work. It does a lot of psychological work. I don't know how it hits you or most readers, but it haunts a lot of people, I think. Well, I do have some thoughts. 
I guess the first thought that comes to my brain, and I can't be the first person to have thought of this, I would just take my shoes off before going into the pond. <laughs> like, that just seems so obvious. <laughs> Let's say she dies in the time. It's a really emergency. She's gulping her last. Ah, she's okay. So I don't have time. Okay, fair enough. But even doing that, doesn't that make you feel weird of taking them off? I mean, does that reveal anything else of like the importance or the priorities? But anyway, let's just say for the, for the sake of the argument. Uh, let's say for the sake. Okay. Getting that out of the way. I think I remember us talking about, I can't remember if it was Singer or Harris who was talking about how proximity plays a large role in why someone would go into the pond, but perhaps not, you know, donate $50 to prevent a Bengali famine. But I'm not quite sure that that's entirely it. And again, I know I'm contending with a, a giant of philosophy here, but I think he was in his 20s. Now I'm older than he was then, so I feel a little more comfortable. But we've seen people donate relatively significant sums of money to individuals on sites like GoFundMe. Someone whose house was destroyed in a tornado or someone whose life was ruined by a false accusation or the family of a murder victim or a homeless man who went viral on TikTok. Or as of this recording, Meg Smaker the filmmaker behind the documentary The Unredacted, which was formerly titled Jihad Rehab, has raised $550,000 on GoFundMe to distribute her film after its rather public, quote-unquote, woke cancellation. And some of that is in large part due to Harris platforming her on his podcast. So I think that there's something more at work here than just proximity, and I'm likely not saying anything that someone else hasn't already said about this (laughs) 51-year-old thought experiment, but I think it comes down to two things. The famous phrase often attributed to Joseph Stalin, which goes, quote, a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic, end quote. I think that matters a lot. I think we viscerally understand what one person in need looks like, but a million or a billion people is harder to imagine. And and more importantly, and this is my final thought on this before I hand it back to you, I think it also comes down to immediacy and intimacy of a one-to-one connection in the same way that I know that if I jump into the pond after taking off my shoes, that I will save her. So too, do I know that if I donate to a GoFundMe, assuming it's not fraudulent, that my money will go directly to the person or persons running it. So if I donate my money to some organization that I'm not familiar with, that I don't run, that I've never donated to before, it's kind of a black box. I don't know how much of it's being spent and I have no guarantee it's making it to its advertised location or group. So I think that's one reason of many that kind of complicates this picture. It doesn't excuse inaction, but I think that a site like GoFundMe, let's say, offers a pretty good counter-argument to some of the reasoning behind Harris and Singer's arguments around this case. There's plenty of pushbacks and wrinkles to it, and you put your finger on a lot of them. What's really at play is, always, I think, is the tension, and really strong tension, between our evolved psychology and philosophy. There's always a tension between the two. And you put something on the table of proximity and sort of knowledge of sort of uh, certainty that you can help versus sort of a vagary, which is what the effect of altruism movement and people like Peter Singer, if anybody is moved by it, he wrote a book, The Life You Can Save. People probably know Will McCaskill and Peter sort of championed the entire effect of altruism movement. And they try to do the work to answer your concern about like, how could I be sure? Like, I'm sure I could rescue this child. I'm going to have knowledge of whether it works or not, but I'm not sure if I give this donation, it's really going to work. So let's not do it. They're trying to answer that directly, right? They're trying to show you, here's the data. Here's why it's effective. We just keep vetting it, et cetera. So that concern is real. But I think the more interesting one about 
proximity is the, and the second clip I use in that episode is Paul Bloom, who wrote the book Against Empathy. And proximity and psychology and empathy is huge. He's sort of, Stalin was not the worst philosopher in that quote, but what he's pointing to there sounds like, and this is seems to be, it's hard to argue that what he's pointing to there sounds like a bug in our moral philosophy. It's exploiting something about the way our psychology evolved to have tons of empathy for something that's in our proximity, something that we can see, a child we can hear, a child who might kind of look like us versus just this nameless statistic of the kid I said, just from random kid in Africa, you'll never know their name. You'll never even know if it worked. You get like no psychological reward. It doesn't stir up the emotions of panic, of help, of whatever. Just to yes and you there, I bet Maybe there's been some kind of study on this or some kind of hypothetical scenario that they can play out because I imagine it would be fairly easy to do with a random sample. I bet that there is actually a rather profound difference between a person's ability or a person's willingness to act on a drowning child they can see versus someone just coming to them like panting, sweating in a panic. Hey, there's a drowning child half a mile from here. Please help me. I bet that there's a pretty significant delta between the people who will do one and not the other, even though it's only half a mile away. My favorite, just to really underline this weird feature of our psychology, this is my favorite psychological study, and I don't, I can't credit, I don't know who did it. it may have been Slovak. It's my favorite one, that you could do this donation game where you bring someone into the lab and you give them $100, and then you tell them, Here's the whole game. So you start by giving them $100 before you say anything. And then you say, you can donate any amount of that $100. And the recipient of the donation will not know how much you started with. So you could give five and they think like you gave half of it or whatever. And we have 20 random recipients and they're just numbered one through 20, just literally numbers. And then you say, okay, so how much do you want to donate? And people say a number, whatever they say, 20, 30. Sometimes they're a little generous. And then you say, cool, all right, $30. I'm going to pick a random number. And then, oh, it was number 11. You gave $30 to number 11. They're going to receive it. And then that's variation one. In the second group, you do the same exact experiment, but you just you, you change the order of one tiny thing where you say, okay, you start again, $100. And you say, you could donate any amount. They won't know how much you started with. We have numbers one through 20 here. That's the recipient. Let's pick a random number. You spin a dial or roll dice or whatever. You're like, okay, cool, it's number 18. And then how much do you want to give to number 18? The donation number in that version of it goes up by a significant amount, simply because there's now a number. Like you're imagining who number 18 is, or is number 18 going to think I'm a good guy, whatever it is. And that's crazy, right? Like you've changed nothing. It's still just a number, but now a number is better than just a random donation. And you could keep doing these studies in the conversation with Bloom, Sam brings up, the, I think it's also a Slovak study of, I could tell you the story about one particular child and their plight, and you'll want to give a lot of money to this person. But then if I just add their brother and sister to the same kid into the same story, the donation and the empathy goes down. And if, as Stalin said, if I make a million kids who are just like that one kid, I've kept the same kid that you wanted to give money to in the first place, the donation and the empathy goes down. All of this seems like a bug in our philosophy. It's certainly a psychological finding. And what do we do with that? How do we manage that? How do we deal with that? And now, to sort of your GoFundMe point that I've sort of skirted around, what's really interesting, for better or worse, and this isn't like a new finding, but because probably everyone has a 4K camera in their pocket now, a video does a lot of work. And 
seeing someone's face does a lot of work. Proximity has become a strange concept in the year 2022, as we all know. We're Zooming right now on a video call and you can see my face, even though we're hundreds of miles apart. Proximity is strange and people might be trying to, instead of pushing the sort of philosophical argument in a Singarian way that might feel a little detached for people, We've gone very hard the other way, which is, again, nothing new, to try to hack the psychology that we know that people will respond to empathy, people will respond to proximity, and we're just trying to bring proximity closer and bridge distances and pull heartstrings. Again, none of this is anything new, but it is a really interesting quandary of how to sort of manage and operate through life and through the world. And I don't even know what what we do with it. I don't even have a recommendation, but it's interesting. (laughs) Let's put it that way. And the film will explore a lot of that, obviously. I mean, I know it's become kind of a meme and a joke at this point, but those were about the same age. You probably remember these commercials from the late 90s with the In the Arms of an Angel playing in the background. And it's like, for just 10 cents a day. (laughs) Save a child. Sally Struthers. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And we like to make fun of it. But I imagine just based on what you've just said that that really helped move the needle because it's one thing to talk about some starving child half a world away. It's another thing to see someone a citizen of your own country walking through that very village and actually showing those children who you could immediately help. Sam has an interesting, and again, he's not the first here, but in the conversation with the drowning child, one thing to put on the table here is Peter's a hard utilitarian, which is, if people haven't heard it before, it's sort of just this maxim that we ought to maximize flourishing and minimize suffering. There's a lot of brands of utilitarianism you could talk about as raising the flourishing of a few by a lot, does that equal raising the flourishing of everyone by a tiny bit? Like, Do you factor in future generations? You could talk about all these things. But in general, it's about just this maximizing flourishing, minimizing suffering, which motivates a ton of his advocacy for sort of just the best bang for your buck when you're giving money or you're wanting to donate or you're wanting to do good. So that's why they're doing all the kind of work, which goes directly to your question of like, well, I'm sure I could save this child. Because one of the clever responses to Peter was came from Kwame Apia, who said, don't run in and save the drowning child. Run to the nearest pawn shop, pawn your shoes, give that money to a charity that's going to save three children, and there you go. Which kind of saves more children, right? Like It answers the utilitarian perspective, but it seems psychologically just impossible to run past the drowning child while they're screaming at you. And that brings the point to the relationship between psychology and philosophy, and how Sam, who's certainly consequentialist, which is a moral framework which judges or attempts to evaluate the morality of a situation based on its outcome rather than like the thing itself, which we talk more about. But consequentialism can be pretty flimsy because you could, this is the kind of alchemy you could do of like, well, what does it reveal about the kind of person someone is who would just run past a drowning child? Or even worse, just watch as they like polish their shoes while the child is drowning or something, or take a selfie with their cool new shoes while the child is drowning. What does it reveal about this kind of person psychologically versus someone who would run in and save the child? Or what does it reveal about the kind of person who just forgoes a charity donation, which feels like a very different kind of person. The person who forgoes a charity donation to buy the shoes they really wanted versus someone who runs in and saves the child or doesn't save the child. They feel like very different situations about what it reveals about the kind of people they are. And then with sort of the consequentialist version of things, you could just be like, well, 
if everybody was like the person who forgoes the charity donation versus if everybody was like the person who didn't save the drowning child, which society would result in sort of better outcomes? And then, you know, you start to be like, well, that's why this thought experiment doesn't quite grab as deeply as it might first appear to if you do that kind of work on it. I think it's an interesting response. I think it's a good response. And it really opens up this conversation to what I think is more important about psychological character and what it means to have a good psychological character or a good moral character and why I think that's a a crucial, important conversation to have now in an age of rapidly improving technology. But that opens up a whole other conversation. And a conversation I think we should have, because I think it ties into something we've also discussed briefly, which is moral realism versus moral anti-realism. I found this dichotomy quite interesting. Could you explain it to our listeners? Because I want to dive into it with you, but I figure we should probably lay a foundation first. Yeah, I mean, there's, again, a lot of flavors and branches of this, but a moral realist basically is someone who contends that there are objective truths in the space of morality. So saying something like slavery is a moral wrong is not just my opinion or a matter of taste, but actually sort of objectively grounded as a wrong. Always is wrong, always was wrong, always will be wrong. An anti-realist, and again, there's tons of flavors of each of them that we should sort of parse a couple of them, but an anti-realist just rejects what I said, says, I might agree with you that slavery is wrong, but I can't ground that in anything objective truly outside of myself. In philosophy jargon, we would say like, there's no view from nowhere from which to stand in order to make that moral objection. It's always ultimately grounded in some sort of anthropocentric subjectivity. This generally is called relativism, that it's all relative, that that there's just nowhere to stand that you can objectively say something is right or wrong, whereas the realist contends there is. And that's the start of that conversation. We can, we can break into what they mean. Well, it's so interesting because I want, yeah, I want to believe that there is an objective moral truth that just exists, almost kind of like God, that's just out there. And slowly over time, we find it, right? In the same way, we, we might discover the divine. If science just advances far enough, we'll find heaven. But in some ways, it makes me deeply uncomfortable, perhaps because I was once religious and am now not religious. There's a part of the underlying foundation of moral realism that makes me feel religious in a way that kind of causes discomfort. And I guess why this moral realism versus moral anti-realism thing, I find it so relevant today is only a few weeks ago, it was Columbus Day, otherwise known as Indigenous Peoples Day, depending on what state you live in and what your political leanings are. And every year around that time, you start getting in this argument of like, you know, Columbus or Cortez, you know, let's take Cortez. You know, Cortez came and They butchered all these indigenous people and they were brutal and they tried to convert them to Christianity against their will and things that we can look at in the 21st century as like true horrors, right? Things that we would never condone. If they were happening today, we would say this is a genocide or this is the very least a cultural genocide. But then, of course, the counter argument to that is, you know, from the other side of the aisle is, well, the indigenous people of Central and South America were sacrificing children to their God on a daily basis, you know, or they would, when they would conquer armies, they would kill all the men and rape all the women and sometimes butcher all the children, right? As if that's some kind of own, like, oh, well, you know, you say Cortez is bad, but look how much worse the natives were, right? And the reason that I find those arguments, that back and forth bickering rather useless is both of those groups of people were operating within the moral and cultural sphere in which they lived. And so whether it's 
trying to relate a 21st century mind to Cortez 500 years ago or trying to compare, in order to better him, Cortez to the natives of the same era, I find both of those comparisons useless for me because I think that unless we were just incredibly one of a kind, had we been living in that Mayan civilization or had we been living on that Spanish ship sailing to the new world, we would have felt how those men on that boat felt. We would have felt how those people in that Mayan city felt. So I'm not really convinced that there is, and this is difficult to say because of course I think most people believe that murder is wrong, but do we really feel that way because there's just some godlike feeling that we just have to find and once we find this moral God, then we will know the one true morality? It just, it makes me uncomfortable because it feels religious. Am I making sense? <laughs> yeah. And you put a lot on the table there. Yeah. To start, it's really well said. And it's funny that you're like, yeah, you're going through the episode in an interesting way because then John Haidt was my next <laughs> clip. So these are great sort of transitions, but we should always be incredibly careful about the temptation. As you said, everyone wants to be a moral realist because it feels so much more powerful to be like, Listen, I, you know what you're doing is wrong. It's, that's that's not my opinion. That's just like not my upbringing or culture. Like it's just objectively wrong, dude. Like it's you're grounding it somewhere outside of yourself, which almost like gives you this distance from the feeling of that you're the one doing the moral condemnation. And what's interesting is like that a strong atheist like Sam, and maybe sort of a humanistic objective morality advocate, as he wrote in the Moral Landscape, is a hair's length away from on the tree of the taxonomy in the moral realist sphere as what's called divine command theory, which is one of the easier ones to understand. It's just God gives us our morality and that's objective. God is objective and it's divinely ordained. So ISIS is very much a, a moral realist philosophy. We've all sort of seen and heard about the awful videos of them like pushing gay men off of roofs while like hugging them and being like, you know, sorry, dude, this, this isn't my opinion. God just said we had to do this. So I'm just enforcing God's will here. This temptation, and this can happen in secular ways as well throughout history, the horrors of the lore of strong, objective morality is dangerous, and we should always be careful with it. We should always be asking ourselves things about it. Just to interject real quick, I think that that in some ways is happening within Western societies right now. While there have been many good effects of, and I hate using this word, but it's a shorthand, our woke moment, right? Like being in favor of anti-racism, not being racist, these are all good things. Not being sexist, not sexually harassing people, all good things, right? But the very same thing that makes me uncomfortable about judging people of the past with this kind of moral superiority is what makes me uneasy about the people who feel so, uh, you know, to crib something that you just said, the feeling of divine commandment of, I know that I can cancel you. I can destroy your life. This documentary you've made, Meg Smaker, is an offense and I can ruin your life, your years of work, just to use her as one example, or some random person on Twitter. I will find your workplace. I will tell them you're a racist and I will destroy your life. That to me rings with the same kind of certainty that someone who is in ISIS, they're not comparable. One person is killing someone, another person is getting them fired. But the thing that makes me deeply uneasy is that divine feeling of conviction that you have God on your side, whether that God is really a religious God or the knowledge of you being on the quote unquote right side of history. 
I think it's important at this point to put on the table this distinction between judging an act or an action as moral or immoral versus judging a character or a person. And especially when we're talking about history, like if we want to be moral realists or make an argument that, let me back it up a little bit, (laughs) because there's another philosophy drop and everyone I think has heard it at this point, but David Hume gave us the famous is-ought distinction, which simply says, there is no description of the way the universe is, which tells us how the universe ought to be. This fertilizes the entire field of anti-realism, right? There's no no matter how much we want the is-is to tell us what the oughts should be, they're like separate domains, they're separate realms. But that's not entirely true. And so like Sam's best argument, and an argument that I fully endorse and agree with as well, is that at the very least, if we can agree on some fundamental basis of what good or bad is, a, a world of ultimate suffering versus, a, I could go through Sam's argument if we really wanted to, it's not super important to do it at this point. But that the is-is, and these are, again, like the stuff of science, the stuff we can learn by observation and figuring out what the is-is of the universe are, do they inform the oughts at all? And I think they do, and I think they have something to say to each other about it, but I'm also wary of the temptation of really wanting that to be true. I could go through sort of like the Carl Sagan way, I crossed that bridge and whatever it is, but that's important to put on the table as well. For our listener, and in this case, also me, can you take the is-ought distinction and ground it in, let's say, a recent event or a recent moral judgment or something that is concrete where people can be like, oh, I can see how this person is using that, whether they know it or not, is-ought in order to make some kind of either decree or moral judgment or something? Sure. I mean, but it could be on anything. It could be on uh, what's happening in Iran. So women wanting to show their hair and take off the hijab. So you could say like, well, as a moral realist, you could say it's better for women, morally better, a universe where women are allowed to show their hair and wear what they want than not. So is that just my opinion? Is that my like Westernness? Is that my just sort of cultural moment that's saying that? Or is that grounded in some sort of fundamental is? Like, can I point to an is that informs that? Like, how do I ground that moral judgment? A strong subjectivist who maybe takes David Hume's is-ought distinction says, like, that's always just going to be your opinion. That's always just going to be, you're giving an ought, but it's not an is. And if I was going to try to combat that, I might try to say, like, well, there's truths to know on the is side of that distinction about flourishing and freedom and happiness. And we could do like brain scans on women and do these, you know, counterfactual universes where women are allowed to show their hair and they're allowed to experience all this more like deep qualia. And that has an inherent moral value that we all have a fundamental right to experience flourishing and joy and whatever else. And this is depriving it. And therefore that I'm just saying the is's are informing my oughts, that that women ought to be able to to show their hair. I don't know if I just did it very cleanly or not, but those would be the kind of, you know, ruminations that you would hear from a moral realist who would try to ground what I said of like, that's morally wrong. And that's not just my opinion as an American who grew up seeing women showing their hair. Perhaps we can tie it back to consequentialism versus deontology because, okay, let's say this, like, would a consequentialist, to make sure I'm on the right page here, would a consequentialist say, if we can prove that if women cover their hair, they are happier than women should cover their hair versus, let's say, a deontologist who would just say, covering your hair against a person's individual will 
is always wrong and it should be illegal, or it's always right and it should be legal. Is that a fair summation of those two distinctions? Yeah, but unfortunately, like a consequentialist still, in the end, will have to say that universe A, like they're just comparing counterfactual universes, right? Like universe A, where women aren't allowed to show their, or in this case, maybe two cultures, right? In Iran, women aren't allowed to show their hair, but in the US, they're allowed to show their hair. There's way too many variables in there, obviously, but if you flattened it, that everything was exactly the same, except for that one variable, maybe you could do this. And the consequences are better in A than in B. But how are you judging better, right? Like the anti-realists will keep contending like, oh, you're using the word better, you're using moral language in there. What are you grounding that on? What are you founding that on? Which is why I think moral frameworks are probably the best we can do of just like, this is the framework I'm deploying. So Peter Singer would say like, well, here's what I'm using. I'm using utilitarianism and I'm going to add up the flourishing in that society. Well, how do you judge flourishing? I don't know. <laughs> like, but the moral realist would be at some point we can agree that flourishing has to mean something that relates to the is's of the conscious experiences that correlate to brain states that represent flourishing. And at some point, and here's the really big sort of stick in the mud of the whole thing, it sort of hits that wall that I just went to about consciousness and flourishing is it seems to always run into sort of self-reported data that if someone tells you like, oh, I'm happier or, or I'm happy like this, then that's the best you can do. I think a moral realist might be skeptical of some of that, being like, man, it's possible to know what you're missing. It's possible that you will experience more flourishing in this new state where you're allowed to show your hair and there's more freedom and all that kind of stuff. I don't think there's any way out of this trap, is kind of what I'm saying. Is like you're, we're always going to be deploying language that an anti realist can push back on and say, like, well, how do you judge that state A is better than state B? And I am convinced that the is is inform the odds, and we shouldn't be afraid of that. But again, just keeping in mind John Haidt's constant and useful reminder that we should just be careful of the temptation to do that because we badly want that to be true. We badly want to have some rules in the universe that don't come from within ourselves because they permit us to act, <laughs> I think, more confidently, for better or worse. I want to get to Height's elephant and rider metaphor shortly. But before we get there, I'm much further in the weeds on philosophy than I usually am, but I want to live here for a moment. So on the surface, of course, I think everyone agrees that there needs to be a moral framework for society, not only for society to cohere, especially one as large as ours, but also we need rules like, hey, don't murder, don't steal, you know, like don't hit that guy in the street because he said something to you that upset you. But the more I think about it, that makes me a little bit uncomfortable is that a moral framework in some ways, isn't it kind of like the Big Bang in that we can go all the way back to a point, but if you ask any astronomer or scientist who studies, let's say, the creation of the universe or how the universe came to be, they can go pretty much as far back as the Big Bang. And they can prove that. We can see that the universe is continuing to expand, which supports the Big Bang theory. But no one can truly know, understandably, <laughs> no one was there, what came before that, right? And so you reach a limiting point past which you can only kind of make guesses, right? And so I think similarly with a moral framework, you can only go back to a certain point before you get to a place where you're just saying, well, kind of like a father or mother says to a three-year-old child, it's kind of because I said so. 
you can work back why murder is wrong, but then you could probably start getting into a bunch of scenarios in which murder might seem a little more justifiable in certain cases. And of course, that is reflected in our legal system, which I think is kind of a blend between consequentialism and deontology. It's like deontological at the point of arrest, but consequentialist in the point of sentencing. So it gets more muddy there. Yeah, that's the thing that makes me a little bit uncomfortable is because just to really quickly finish this thought, over the last decade, there has been a lot of noise around like decolonizing science, et cetera, et cetera. And I think a lot of it is a bit of bluster and a lot of it goes a bit too far. And some of it is in fact quite hysterical, but it is rooted in something historically true in that 200 years ago, I could have said something like every person with the last name Shapiro or every person with the last name Callahan should be enslaved because we have done studies, we've measured the sizes of Callahan and Shapiro skulls, and we've realized that actually they have kind of cattle-like temper, they like to be told what to do, and this is, of course, all backed by science and studies that we've done, and so because of the science of this, it is acting in not only our best interest, but theirs, to give them a life of servitude, right? And so I think that there's always that fear, a kind of religious-like certitude can enter science if we're not careful. Yeah, you put a lot on the table again there, but if I could take it to that broader question of judging history and why I think... So you know I wanted to talk about this. One of the moral frameworks that actually used to be very popular, Aristotle and Plato were big fans, and it's out of fashion now, is called virtue ethics. And I think it needs a genuine comeback because I like your analogy of the Big Bang, and I agree with it, that there's the deeper you want to get into trying to ground your philosophy, your moral judgment, your moral attitude towards anything in something objective. I agree there's a wall that you hit. Even Sam, after a lot of pushes, I think it was Scott Barry Kaufman who in a long interview finally got Sam to like throw up his arms and be like, yeah, you can't get an ought from it. And I was glad he finally just sort of like swallowed the logic that David Hume, as much as we want that to be wrong, you just can't break it. But it's the word that I think comes into your Big Bang analogy and these moral things is just probably. It's probably right <laughs> that it's better to flourish than suffer. It's probably right that that freedom is better than slavery. It's probably right. And we should have confidence in that probably enough to act. And we become very, very paralyzed given a lot of the things that you said about the mistakes of history, awful confidence, that moral things that now we look back on with horror. But here's a thought experiment that I've been really, really thinking about and pushing on lately and why I think it relates to judging history and why we kind of need an upgrade here. Clearly, the woke tearing down statues things, it might be onto something, but it's totally misguided as many movements, youth movements especially are. And the pushback is predictably reactionary and stupid as well. But it seems that we should be able to cohere on something, like I said, that that it's probably better to flourish than suffer. And it's probably better. Here's an example. In the episode with Sam, I used meat without murder, but I'll use a different one here. We kind of can all recognize, at least, and I'm talking again in the West here, that our relationship with many other cultures in the world is completely morally compromised by our addiction to oil right? It's not like a controversial sentence. Our relationship with Saudi Arabia, we probably, most listeners probably have some moral confidence that for better or worse, we don't have all the right answers in the West on all kinds of moral questions, but there's things that Saudi Arabia is doing morally that we probably think are wrong (laughs) and we would love them to stop. And maybe if we could do all the ruminations of philosophy grounded in something that it's an objective moral wrong, but we know we're compromised because of this addiction to oil. 
And doing the thought experiment, and this is um, Sam and Paul Bloom challenged themselves to do like, what's something that we're engaged in that future generations will look back on moral horror with us, like a lot of the things you've mentioned in this podcast already. And they said, factory farming and eating animals. And I completely agree. And another one, I think clearly going to be our use of oil and our, let's call it, very passive attitude towards many moral wrongs in the world. We could even do this with China and a genocide that's happening right now that we probably aren't going to do anything about in the world because we're all addicted to cheap Chinese plastic goods as well. So you can do this with oil, all these kinds of things. Future generations, if that problem is solved, so here's the big question. When I say solved, I'm not talking about character. I'm talking about the outcomes, right? Like from some objective point of view, if it's solved by oil is replaced by a much better, and maybe we have it already, we could. We don't need to argue about nuclear or anything, but a better energy source that makes the use of oil completely irrational, and it just doesn't happen anymore. The way that using slavery right now would be completely irrational because you do not need to do it to have a functioning economy at all. And it's stupid. It's not just morally stupid, but it's also just economically stupid, so no one does it. As a micro example, if you think horses, and this is bringing in animal ethics, if you think horses shouldn't be used as a kind of slave labor to drag chariots around and drag things around all over cities, great. You could have thought that a couple hundred years ago. I might be getting my timelines wrong when that was very common practice. Well, the combustion engine put them all out of work. Is it easier for us to sit here and condemn that moral practice because we happen to be born into a time after the combustion engine existed? Is it going to be easier in a future history <laughs> that is born into a world that hopefully has a much better energy source, will they look back upon us as moral monsters for participating in these international relations and not doing anything about a genocide in China or not doing anything about what's happening in the Middle East? Really, I mean, we can make speeches, but I'm sure they won't think we're acting strong enough. Will they be tearing down statues of people who just sat by while genocides happened? Maybe. But and here's the really big, and this is what I'm super fascinated in now. You would say, or at least I would say, moral progress is possible. If we ground morality somehow objectively and agree on things like more flourishing or even just for horses that aren't enslaved or whatever it is, moral progress is possible. Everyone knows the Stephen Pinker graphs. People are living longer. People are enjoying things more than ever. Moral progress is happening. Slavery doesn't exist anymore. Like universe A and universe B where slavery is practice. Obviously, there's forms of slavery that exist now, but not the transatlantic slave trade and massive versions of it. You brought in all the sort of justifications philosophically that people used to dehumanize them and skull measuring and all kinds of stuff that maybe made it easier to participate in that. So maybe they sensed the moral kind of <laughs> wrongness of it. But I would say it's moral progress that the transatlantic slave trade does not exist anymore. That seems like a non-controversial thing to say. Are we better people? Do we have better moral characters? than the people who participated in it or existed around it? Maybe. But I think that's a really stupid way to judge it because what's obviously true is that we're morally lucky from an objective sort of consequentialist point of view to have been born into a time where slavery was stupid and there's zero sacrifice to freeing your slaves, right? Like no one has them. Because why would you have them? You don't need it. We have all kinds of automation, all kinds of other things that have put the practice out of work. So what came first? The technological innovation that allowed this moral sort of awakening to happen? Or did the moral awakening happen, which then spurred 
the need to invent a technological solution to absolve ourselves of it. We're probably in that moment right now. Everyone feels it about oil in Saudi Arabia, especially with Russia invading Ukraine and everyone's hand tied there. I know there's nukes involved in there, but are we all feeling like we know we're morally compromised, so we need to invent our way out of this? Which also puts on the table a fascinating relationship between is-is, like scientific exploration of making the combustion engine, and moral progress, which is kind of like the, at the time that you make the combustion engine or you're tinkering around in a garage somewhere, you're not really thinking about this innovation as a great leap forward morally for the output that we're doing. But it probably is one, again, from just universe A, universe B, utilitarian, add up all the suffering, add up all the flourishing, and it's going in the right direction. But the character of the people shift at all? I'm not sure. That's a question that fascinates me. And that seems to be the drastically misguided aspect of judging history and taking down statues and all those kinds of stuff. Are we patting ourselves on the back for having this wonderful moral character when we're just kind of lucky to exist in a time where these innovations made that shift and that action easy? But it's not true across the board. I, I am a vegan. We could talk about that moral progress. I have no doubt in the future, animal eating, and maybe the distant future, but animal eating will also be viewed as a moral horror. But <laughs> it'd be very hard for me to think that the moral character of people will have changed that much where they have this great moral awakening. Will they look back on animal eaters now with the same kind of condemnation? Probably. And I don't think it's quite fair because I'm sure between us now, most people eating animals, and the future where that is no longer a thing, there will be many technological innovations like cultivated meat and everything else where their behavior and their sort of sacrifice will be almost, you know, nothing. <laughs> it's like someone who says they're going to boycott Chick-fil-A because of their politics, who never liked Chick-fil-A or went to Chick-fil-A. It's like, great, you didn't do anything. Go try to boycott something you actually use if you're going to like actually show this moral character. But that's fascinating. And none of that says we shouldn't have these technological innovations. But I think we're missing a, a huge piece of the puzzle when we don't recognize the moral luck and moral grit from a consequentialist utilitarian point of view on the outside of things, which is why I'm fascinated by a, a hopefully reinvigoration of virtue ethics, because virtue is something separate that almost stands aside from the frameworks of deontology and consequentialism, as you said it. So uh, I'll shut up and let you go. But that's my spiel on judging history morally. Yeah, Jay, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love hearing you talk about this stuff. It makes me feel smarter. The idea of technological innovation driving moral innovation, I think it really touches on the idea of man as a rational animal versus man as a rationalizing animal. There's a comparison that I made often. I really do think of morality as a technology. In the same way that if we were to look at a photo of someone from the 1960s standing in a gigantic warehouse surrounded by an enormous computer, what an idiot. Why didn't he just use an iPhone? We would be stupid to make that judgment because, of course, the iPhone is a product of that very first computer 60 years ago, right? But it was the process of technological innovation that led us from a warehouse-sized computer all the way to a computer that can do way more than that, and it can fit in our pockets, right? I think similarly... Morality is a technology upon which we build. And so if we look back at someone several hundred years ago and be like, can you believe that they sacrificed children to get a good crop yield? They'd only known about putting crops in the right soil and all these other things that are related to modern agriculture, right? Again, I'm wholly on board with the idea of technological innovation driving moral innovation. But 
that does seem like an argument against moral realism. Or flipping it, right? Like I'm saying, or flipping it, because hopefully this is your question, is man the rational animal or the rationalizing animal? This is, uh, it's sort of the John Haidt versus Sam Harris kind of tug of war about, are we really reasoning our way to these things or are we just rationalizing? And are these all just sort of evolved emotions we have for things and then we're really good? You know, he compares us, he says we're really good lawyers for ourselves, right? Like rather than philosophers. <laughs> right. Your Honor, Your Honor, if only you could known what was in his mind when he did what he did. And you could find an argument for just about anything. This is also the curse of studying philosophy is that I know exactly the best argument against me every time, which is incredibly useful, but then also psychologically paralyzing of like, I don't know if I'm just being my own good lawyer now. It makes you a better lawyer. It makes you a better, like, I could argue my way into anything. If you give me a position on something, I know the framework that sort of represents the best argument for it. But John is important there. I think this dovetails really well is he doubts how rational man really is as an individual, but he definitely is a champion of systems which encourage moral and rational behavior. So he's really interested in studying how systems do that rather than sort of individuals on their own. So I don't have any like particular strong stake on either sides of those grounds. But the reason I like this virtue ethics thing is that judging, I like the way you put it, that it's like technological innovation and moral innovation and the strange relationship between the two. What I'm fascinated in is that if you went back in history, or if you think about people in history who were involved in something like the slave trade, or just living at that time, I'm sure there was people recognizing and fighting against it as an immoral practice. But what's interesting from sort of a utilitarian perspective or consequentialist perspective, what you do with that moral indignation, if you have a sense that this practice is immoral, and again, I'm sure there was tons of people who thought that. Obviously, we fought a civil war eventually over it, but tons of earthlings thought this is immoral. What would be sort of the best in the Peter Singering way, like bang for your buck to increase the flourishing in the universe if you were convinced however you ground that this was an immoral practice, would be to like invent the cotton gin or, you know, get in a lab and figure out how to, you know, make GMOs and get better crop yields and all kinds of technological innovations that would render the temptation. If you think people are sort of just convincing themselves in the lawyerish sense, all those arguments that you made about people having smaller brains or that they're not really human or Africans are animals and so this is okay or religiously founded or in India, a caste system, whatever else. Like if John Haidt is right, that all of those are really just lawyer stories to convince yourself that you are in the right here or to bolster your stance because really you just want the cheap labor or you want the good crops or the money that you're getting from selling it or whatever, or a psychological domination, whatever it is. What's interesting about that whole line of thinking is that the action of inventing a cotton gin doesn't feel like what somebody who has a strong moral opinion about something should be doing, right? It feels like a scientific thing, not like a moral philosophy thing. It's not about just going out and making the best argument for something and changing everybody's mind and their behavior. It's about and maybe this is cynical, but making it very easy for all of the lawyers in everybody's mind to start arguing the other side of things. And as soon as they do it, and I'm sure a lot of us who've been in, plugged into a lot of conversations over the last 20 years since 9-11 have noticed this, people will switch. The lawyer in their head will switch and start making arguments that they would never have made 10 years ago. They probably would have been called all kinds of Islamophobe and everything else, a lot about what happened in Afghanistan and Iran now. There's people that I've seen say things that 
you don't notice. And nobody will ever come back and tell you like you were right. You just have to bite your tongue and being like, okay, it's flipping now. And it's a cynical view maybe, but it's a view that I think gives a lot of weight to John Haidt that people will switch when it's convenient for them, when it's easy for them. And certainly having a combustion engine makes it convenient for you not to have a horse anymore. Probably just worked better too. There's also that. But let's talk like climate change. I actually don't have a ton of doubt that in a future, hopefully not too distant future, we will have solved that problem. And the problem will be solved by something like, and this is just a guess, but like seeding the clouds or nanorobots eating the carbon in the air, whatever it is. It's going to be some like scientific, sci-fi sounding crazy solution that's technical rather than everybody changes their behavior because of some moral, I don't know, awakening. You can see that happening already with the costs of batteries and solar panels plummeting much faster than anticipated. Yeah, I mean, solar could be whatever it is. And of course, we're living through it. So we can sense maybe that we know it's a moral wrong to destroy the planet and all these things. And so is that what's driving the innovation? Yeah, maybe to a degree, but some future generation, and this is the point that I think really is interesting for virtue and virtue ethics, because way back to when we started talking about this tension between psychology and morality, a world where climate change is solved and we're having nanorobots in the clouds eating the carbon or whatever the hell it looks like, again, compare universe A to that one to this one, that's moral progress from these utilitarian point of views. But does the character of anyone born into that world, is it different than my character or a slave owner's character? I don't know. And what I think is interesting about virtue ethics is it kind of starts everybody at zero, is that moral progress from this utilitarian consequentialist perspective is a technological, the way you put it, technological innovation is moral innovation. And those universes are producing less harm, allowing for more flourishing, but everyone starts at zero psychologically. They're born into what they're born into. And some of it from that perspective is morally lucky and morally unlucky. I consider you and I morally unlucky to be born into a world where climate change is not yet solved. It's a challenge for our generation, for our epoch to solve. We could have been born into, as you pointed out, a generation and a moment where mass production of crops And that hasn't been solved to that point. We're using, uh, in quotes, not slave labor, but illegal immigration and all kinds of crappy practices to pick fruit. We're still in a version of it now. It's not nearly as immoral as it used to be, but it's still not solved in a way that a future generation will probably be more lucky than us to not have to eat berries that are picked by someone who's not earning a fair wage or whatever it is, or hopefully it's a robot. And so we're all like born into the situation we're in, which is from, again, this view from nowhere perspective, either has luck or has unluck. But then our virtue is a challenge of what kind of moral character can we develop within ourselves to navigate that world, to maybe push for the innovations that need to be pushed for or not. And everybody starts at zero. And in that sense, it makes it much harder because how do you judge the character of somebody 800 years ago that we don't really know. We just know their actions. Like, oh, they were involved in the slave trade. Bad person. I feel like it's a little empty and that's where the wokeness thing has really gone wrong and it's why my emphasis on something like virtue ethics isn't all that helpful about, I don't know the character of a slave owner really, but I know what he engaged in. And so I can judge that and I can judge the action, but it's 
starting him at zero and starting me at zero, I don't know what his moral character and life was like, to be honest. And I have a feeling that it wasn't so good as a slave owner, but as someone who just participated in it or lived in that time, that's most people are just born into a time where they're not going to invent the next great innovation that does that kind of thing. Maybe they could hope it happens. Maybe they can advocate for it. Maybe they could write essays or whatever it is, but we're all stuck given the problems that we have in front of us, which I like the way you put it. Moral innovation and technological innovation are nearly the same thing. And it would be nice if we flipped the script in a way that gave us more confidence that moral awakenings actually was what were driving technological innovations rather than technological innovations will just happen and then we'll all pat ourselves on the back and pretend that it was some moral awakening that drove it in the first place. That's leading to a whole lot of smugness about history, a whole lot of smugness about the future that seems to be incredibly unhelpful. But the flip side of this, just to put one more thing on the table, because it's hard to go way back to having confidence about objective morality, confidence about moral character, confidence about all these things. The reaction to the sort of wokeness side has been a really ugly version of Proud Boys and I don't even know what their initiation phrase is, but it's hard to make some of these statements without sounding like I'm a proud male Western chauvinist. They say something like this or whatever. That can't become obviously the battle cry of having confidence that what the Iranian regime is doing to women is wrong. It can't just become we have the right answer in the West and this is totally wrong what they're doing over there and I'm going to say it loud and I'm going to say it proud as a Western male chauvinist. That balance beam is getting more narrow between these two extremes that seem to be you know, tearing it apart from both sides. I agree. And to add just a bit of nuance to that comparison between, let's say, yourself and a slave owner in the 19th century, well, I think perhaps the more relatable example might be instead of comparing yourself to the slave owner in the same way that maybe... To go back to the drowning child example, everyone or near everyone would save the drowning child and say, I don't give a crap about my sneakers. I'm going to jump into the pond and save her or save him. In the same way that it becomes much more messy once we start thinking about, well, maybe instead of buying that pair of shoes, you could donate $100 to save a starving child in Southeast Asia. Maybe the better question to ask is, had you and I or had anyone listening to this been around in 1830 in America? and not own slaves, just been like an average person, perhaps even living in the North, going about their day-to-day life, would you have set your own life aside? Would you have set your own goals aside? And would you have done everything in your power or even a modest amount of the things within your power to bring slavery to an end? I think that's a more complex question, right? Because there were so many people, I mean, 99% of people, 99 point whatever percent of people living in America, free men living in America at that time did not own slaves. And yet it was allowed to persist until, of course, something <laughs> something relatively important happened in 1860. But I think that's the more interesting question for me is that like there is so much human suffering happening right now as we're recording this. And I think some of the compartmentalization that we do mentally is an evolutionary result. Like I think that there is something in our brains that does not permit us to actually think about the universal suffering that's happening to millions, if not billions of people right now. Because if we truly had to take all that in all the time, we would be so crippled by inaction that the world would cease to be. But that's perhaps a conversation for another day, because I know we are getting a little short on time. 
I did want to ask you one final question to kind of wrap us out. I think it's relevant to our entire conversation. And I think it goes back to something you said about Peter Singer's obsession with translating philosophy into the real world. Because I think there might be a question in some people's minds as they listen to us talk about this and talk about these topics specifically. How useful is philosophy when and if philosophers don't rule us, right? We don't have many philosophers in Congress. We don't have many, I don't think we've ever had a philosopher running the executive. So when we have these conversations doing hypothetical scenarios and what might be the ultimate good of this and how can we maximize flourishing, right? I truly believe these are important conversations to have, which is one of the reasons I love having you on this show. But I think for some people, some of it might seem either a bit navel-gazing or it might seem a first-world thing to do. So how useful is philosophy when philosophers don't rule? Hmm, it's an interesting question. It is the tension between psychology and philosophy that actually does the most work as I've been sort of trying to like toe that line between the two. Maybe it's way back to even the writing thing because talking to yourself and being aware of if you're just convincing yourself of something I think it's incredibly useful. I mean, to go to this virtue thing, and I know I just like opened the can of worms in the last answer with it, that seems to be the asking the best question of oneself and a life well lived. I mean, if what we just said makes any sense to people, and what I just said is like, well, you're probably not going to be the one, and I'm not going to be the one who like solves climate change with a technological innovation. I could just bitch about climate change and be like, oh my God, look at all the immoral outcomes that it's causing. We need to fix this problem. And then someone will fix the problem. (laughs) Great. What good is that, right? Like, was that hard? Was that philosophy hard? Was that psychology hard? I don't know. But learning what, I think, digging in on personal level of what is the good life? What is a life well lived? What does a virtuous character actually feel and look like? That's the stuff that philosophy certainly needs to do a better job at promoting. And I think psychological truths to be discovered and how they relate to these philosophical outcomes as John Haidt's really good at doing also need to be promoted. But on a little bit of a pushback to the philosophers don't rule is everyone's a philosopher. And when you study it, everybody is promoting some philosophy, whether they know it or not. You'll see it everywhere. Every time you turn on the news, it's either consequentialism or deontology. And every political party flips to being about principles, which is deontology versus about outcomes, which is consequentialism, whenever it's convenient for them. This is kind of John Heights' righteous mind. And so philosophy is inescapable, really. It's just people might not be trained in it or know the lingo, but everybody is a, a philosopher. Everybody is enacting and living by some norms of either their own self-invention or whether just imparted by their culture. Most people are probably a little more conformist than just go along with what the society says. Most people are driven by conformity and obedience rather than sort of like questioning. But there's always philosophy at play, always. It's inescapable. We might not be ruled by someone with a philosophy degree, but we are ruled by philosophy all the time. And I sort of challenge that to a degree. And sharpening your skills with it, knowing what the best frameworks are against it. Again, certainly, at least for me, allows me to navigate moral situations, political situations, and personal situations with a degree of carefulness and confidence, if that makes sense, because I'm prepared for the pitfalls. Like, am I just being fooled again and giving into the temptation of an objective sort of moral stance? Or do I actually have a good standing here? 
Can it help me understand someone else better? And then I think my sort of haphazard pitch for virtue ethics as a, a really interesting tie between philosophy and psychology, hopefully, I would hope, is, I think, or I'm convinced, is a really crucial area for one to understand and study in a world where moral outcomes, even back to the drowning child, like giving a random donation, doesn't feel the way saving the child in the pond does because of proximity, which is an accident of the time we live in, which we did not evolve to navigate, right? Like we evolved in small groups and tribes and to be closer to our kin. And so of course we have this empathy thing that wants us to save our child in our view more than five random strangers. Of course we have that. But is that the best moral outcome for us? And how do we merge the two? And so we didn't evolve to solve climate change. It's not immediate. It's not even visual mostly. It doesn't trigger the right thing psychologically for us to feel it as the kind of emergency that it really might be. That doesn't make it go away at all. And so learning philosophy and trying to pick the best versions of it through virtue ethics and everything else, I think for me is incredibly useful to try to navigate a world which, again, trusting your gut, trusting your intuition, and just trying to be a good person will not always lead you through this world appropriately because all of those guts and those emotions and those immediate reactions were evolved for a world that did not have the iPhone, as you mentioned, and did not have the proximity hacks that we have with GoFundMe and everything else that you've put on the table, and didn't have tons of the innovations that we have. And so I think we need this in order to not just fall into a stupor where we trust all of the technological innovations to solve all the moral problems for us and keep just patting ourselves on the back or condemning history without ever actually noticing, I hope if I convinced anybody, that in a lot of ways we all start at zero, no matter what. And future generations are going to have their own moral compromises that they will have to contend with. This problem does not go away. And we're all going to start at zero, and we all have the same mountain to climb of the eternal questions of what is the good life. So that's my pitch for it, is that we need it more than ever now because innovation, technological progress will continue to solve the problems. I hope we'll continue to solve the problems that people are hand-wringing about and fighting about politically in all kinds of ways. But the eternal problems don't go away. They haven't gone away for us. They're not going to go away for future generations. They didn't go away in the past. I don't know. Did that make any sense? <laughs> did, that, did that make a pitch for anyone? Well, it certainly made a lot of sense to me, and I imagine it does to our listeners as well. And I have to say, even if I didn't consider you a friend, which I do, I would still consider you one of the show's best guests because you are so thoughtful and considerate and reflective in your answers, and you really put your mind into every question. And so I really appreciate the time you've spent with me and with us today. And I would love to, not to put you on the spot, I would love to have you back before the year's out, maybe for a fun holiday episode. How does that sound? Yeah, no, that sounds great. I appreciate the compliment. I'm honed in at the moment. I hope when these Sam episodes come out, whether you're a fan of Sam Harris or not, any listeners or you disagree with him, I think people will get a lot out of them. I try to do a really good job of presenting the best argument for and against Sam's position. And frankly, like I said, there's plenty of my thoughts and philosophy weaved throughout all of them. 
If you like anything I said here, but you want to hear it sharpened and written and framed better, those, I really take my time, put a lot of effort into them. So hopefully there's fans of them. Yeah, again, if you love Sam or if you hate Sam, like it actually doesn't matter. I think you'll get a ton out of them. So yeah, I appreciate it. But I'll totally be back for a holiday episode. Which holiday? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. Maybe something around, maybe Boxing Day, sometime between Christmas and New Year's. That's that Canada one? I know nothing about it. I know nothing about Boxing Day. Uh, It's the day after Christmas. I know that, (laughs) but I have no idea why it's called Boxing Day. I've never gone down that rabbit hole. I think it might have something to do with that was the day that wealthy British people would give their in-house servants gifts. A box of things. Is that what that was? Or it's the day in which you make returns. I don't know. You know what? (laughs) To our listeners out there. The Canadians are going to be like screaming at you. I'm going to put the definition of Boxing Day in the show notes. So you don't have to be an idiot like me. You can look it up and be informed. But before we go, I do want to just give one plug. It's a podcast called Human Values. And I had the pleasure of being on that show. And so did Jay. And I want to recommend anyone who loves how Jay thinks to go to their September 27th episode in which Jay was a guest because they asked these really fun, usually frivolous questions rooted around the idea of how much would it cost for you to do X? And X can be how much would it cost for you to live in Idaho for the rest of your life and never leave? Or on my episode was how much would it cost to spend a year inside an apocalyptic zombie video game, right? Jay's questions were, what's your price to go streaking at Yankee Stadium twice? What's your price to magically be able to remember most life events in vivid detail? And what's your price to log and itemize a mound of trash containing every plastic item you've ever thrown away? And I have listened to many episodes of Human Values, and Jay's episode is my favorite because he brings, you bring, Jay, the same reflective, considerate, intentional presence to those rather frivolous questions. You bring a philosopher's mind to them in a way that really makes it a very engaging episode. So I would just suggest to anyone listening, if you like how Jay thinks, which I certainly do, I'm going to put a link to that show in the show notes. I think you're going to get a real kick out of it. And it does show, to Jay's point, how everyone is a philosopher and you can use a philosopher's mind to wrestle with even extremely silly questions. Yeah, they were really funny too. I was funnier on that episode than this one. But but I talk about Singer and that one in the pond as well and give a pitch. But it was weird. Like their questions were just like, I had a personal anecdote about just about all of them. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. I love that appearance as well. And I will, for my own pitch, I will get back to Dilemma soon. I want to clear my plate a little bit. We didn't even talk about my big move. I live in Mexico now. It's been a busy time, but I am getting back to my show and I have some cool guests that I'm reaching out to. So for fans of my little show, it's coming back too. I so want to talk about Mexico. It would not be a classic Jay Shapiro episode of Where We Go Next if I didn't have way more notes and outlines than I have time to talk about with you on any given recording. Jay, how about we see each other again in two months? I'll be here. (laughs) Well, thank you again for coming on. It's always a pleasure. 